Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Monday Night Live. I'm Derek Arden, and today I've got uh, got my guest, Andrew Wright. Let me tell you just a little bit about Andrew. Andrew is a real negotiator. Anybody that can be deputy head of a school with 800 teenagers has to be a good negotiator. So uh, listen to some of the things that he's got to say and some of the tips about negotiating, but that's not why we're, why we're here. Andrew uh, was a science teacher then became a deputy headmaster of Peacehaven School. That was the first new school set up in Sussex in 21 years, and then moved on to Uckfield College. Andrew left Uckfield College a couple of years ago to set up his own business, and we're gonna learn why he did that and uh, what his business is all about. Andrew's passionate about the fact that uh, we don't use enough of our brains and we don't teach uh, children, uh, teenagers, how to use their brains for to be more successful. Andrew, welcome to Monday Night Live. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Derek. It's brilliant to be here. Thank you. Andrew, just tell us a little bit about your school history, science teacher to deputy head, and then you, um, and then you left it all behind to work for yourself. Yeah, we had to pedal back, actually. So, you know, back in the um, sort of late 70s, living in a shared house, first member of my family, um, having had my milk stolen by Mrs. Thatcher when she was education secretary, she stole my milk along with everyone else's, not just mine personally. I was the first member of my family to go to university and education really transformed my life. So um, when I got to the end of university, it made complete sense to actually take that sort of passion into schools. And I spent 28 happy fairly stressed years in the public education system um ending up at Uckfield 1700 young people at Uckfield 406th form um and yeah the opportunity and I say opportunity the opportunity arose to take voluntary redundancy as a deputy head in a very large school because they were slimming down the leadership team because of government cuts and I took the re voluntary redundancy payment and and um decided to do something I've always wanted to do, which is actually take the passion, the nerdy passion that I've got for the human brain out into the world to support businesses, support children, parents, basically anyone with a brain to learn about how their brain works. We've learned more about the brain in the last 10 years than we have in the last 10,000. We've got loads more to learn, but actually once we understand what we are, we can get a huge amount more out of our brain. I remember some of those motivational quotes from some of the gurus saying we only use, you know, one one hundredth of our brain and then it was only use a tenth of our brain. I'm always confused, but uh, I think I know what they meant. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right. There's that, that one that goes around is when you use 10 percent of our brain, which is obviously not quite right, because evolution wouldn't let you carry around 90 percent uh, um, of stuff that you wouldn't get to use. But. I suppose what they mean is at one time, maybe only 10% of your brain is kind of operating because that particular bit of your brain is working on whatever problem. But what I would say is that a lot of us, a huge amount of humanity is walking around with an idea about what they are and what they're capable of that isn't true. You know, our brain was built to survive in a very dangerous ancestral past. So therefore it's extremely negatively biased. You only need to look out at the newspapers to see how negatively biased the human brain is. It spends three or four times more energy processing negative information than it does positive information. And we could spend our days, if we weren't careful, moaning and groaning and droning 
about the state of our lives and the state of the world and also pinning ourselves back and not giving ourselves um, the benefit of the opportunity of the plasticity that our brain offers us. And is that uh, linked to the unconscious mind and the conscious mind, all that training I had in neurolinguistics? Is that uh, is that how it works and why I go to bed with a book beside me so I can write my notes down at three o'clock in the morning? Uh, th th that certainly helps. I think it's it's linked to the fact that, I mean, the best way of thinking about it is probably to kind of explore uh, how the brain generates us so you know in philosophy and science for years this argument has run and religion what who are we what are we what is the the, the me that runs me well basically we know from neuroscience now what the self is what the mind is so without being too philosophical about it and nice keep it nice and simple the brain builds the mind every day so what is the mind the mind is the brain's way of communicating with itself about what it's doing so the quality of our experiences in our mind come from the physical structure of our brain, which makes a complete connection between physical and mental health. There's this separation. I blame Descartes back in the 16th century who separated them out and we still see it in medicine today, but the brain generates the mind. So that experience we all have when we first wake up in the morning, that groggy feeling that lasts between 15 and 50 minutes, that's sleep inertia. That's the brain going from being in a sleep state, generating that day's mind. And the contents of the brain appear in the mind, but not all the contents of the brain. So the unconscious, if you think about the unconscious, there's lots of information that the brain knows that we don't know what our blood pressure is, what our blood sugar is, um, what the level of particular chemicals in our bloodstream is. All of that stuff is, is being um, analyzed by the brain, but it doesn't appear in our mind. What our mind is, is a way the brain communicates about what's happening in the world, what we're doing about that, and how we're going to negotiate our way through the world. So the mind is a construct. It's like the image produced by a projector. So the quality of each day's experience is partly down to what we've done in the previous 24 hours. In fact, half of how we feel right now is down to what we've done in the last 24 hours. Wow. Now, I know we've got a lot of positive people on here. Um, we've probably got 30 positive people who uh, have studied positive psychology, sports psychology, or, or are really are really interested in it. Uh, those, we're not normal, are we? We're pretty abnormal. Do you know what sort of percentage is that people uh, are negative versus positive? Well, if you just looked at the way the brain responds to negative information, so three times more powerfully to negative information. So you could, you know, you'd probably say perhaps two thirds to three quarters of the population end up in a really kind of negative space um, a lot of the time. And that's because of brain biases. The brain is, is geared towards processing negative information because that kept our ancestors alive. Being very nervous cave people thinking, hang on a minute, that noise behind the bush might be a predator. I won't go down that path that kept our ancestors alive. Being joyful and happy and positive and thinking I'll ignore that noise ended up getting eaten. So joyful, happy cave people didn't leave their genes in the next generation. So we're all um, sort of descended from the ones that worried. So that's why we've got that negative bias. And you see it across the planet. Everyone's whinging all the time about how bad it all is. Uh, but we were doing the same 30,000 years ago when we were shaping hand axes. We were probably moaning then that 
we couldn't get the edge very sharp and this particular hand axe wasn't very good. Now we moan that the Bluetooth headphones don't connect to the computer. We're very good at moaning. Gee whiz, moaning and whinging. Um, yeah. I thought it was all down to the Daily Mail and the newspapers and the BBC bombarding us with bad news as soon as we woke up or, or read something. It's not that, is it? It's just that bad news sells newspapers because of what you just said. Exactly. You're absolutely right. It's almost the reverse. It's actually our brains who are really interested in bad news. Because if you think about it, 30,000 years ago, all bad news was local. So it was relevant. It was important to know that the chief of the tribe had just been eaten by a saber-toothed tiger five miles away from where you were. So, you know, that bad news does. And, you know, newspapers know that if you've got some bad news, uh, you're going to get many more clicks on your website. You're going to get many more viewers than good news. And yeah, actually, if you look out into the world, there's much more good news than there is bad news, but it's actually not that interesting to a human brain. Fantastic. Now, I know you've got some slides to show us. Do you want to show those now or shall I fire another couple of questions at you? Let me give you one slide right now. Um, um, you know, maybe a couple actually. So just bear with me a second while I share my slides. Um, so I thought I'd just mention some of the things we do. So we do this for like I said, anyone with a brain, but the, the whole focus of our work is, is around three strands about understanding yourself, understanding your brain. And we use a lot of neuroscience and the neuroscience is really important because it explains the reason why we do things that we do. So well-being strand. So that's looking at all the things that we should do every day to support our well-being. Mind management is about managing the dark cellar of the brain, anxiety, the way to support ourselves when we're feeling anxious what anxiety is in the brain how to respond to setbacks how to challenge ourselves to grow um, and then unleashing learning and productivity is all about getting the best out of our brains making sure that we're developing our creativity challenging ourselves to grow teaching people how their memories work and how to get the most out of their memory and when I talked about well-being just now I said in 24 hours, 50% of how we feel is down to what we've done in the previous 24 hours. This is a poster, one of the ones we use for primary schools, that just talks about what we call 12 rocks of well-being. So our mission is to take the neuroscience and make it very accessible and extremely practical on a day-to-day -day basis. So there are lots of versions of this poster. This is one for small children. But basically it's saying, if you do these 12 things, you are going to feel as good as you can possibly feel, apart from obviously, you know, relationships and all the other needs that a human has. But these are the 12 habits that are profoundly linked to the way that the brain responds to the world. So if you just looked at rock number two, for example, exercise, we know that exercise is good for our body, but it's amazing for our brain. So when we exercise, our brain generates a hormone called brain derived neurotrophic factor, which causes neurons to sprout connections. So a single neuron can have as many as 10,000 connections. The more connections there are, particularly in the area behind our forehead called the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus deep in the brain, the more there is um, of those connections, then the more flexibility we've got, the more cognitive reserve we've got, the more opportunity to kind of manage our response. And that's just for exercise. There's a whole range of other benefits. So earlier on, we were talking about the unconscious mind. You know, we've got two basic kind of waking brain states. We've got the focused attention brain state, mindfulness, 
which is rock number four, when we're focusing our attention, that might be in a state of meditation, or it might be when we're reading a book or watching a TV program. And then the flip side is uh, mind wandering. That's when our brain isn't focused. That's when it's wandering off. And what it's doing when it's mind wandering, there's a network and that is a problem solving network, usually a social problem solving network, but it's also got a whole dollop of creativity in it as well. So these 12 rocks are nested habits that we need to build into our day to make sure that we're the best version of ourselves, not because we're being selfish, but actually to, you know, a human brain at its top um, ability and us being the best version of ourselves means we're going to give the best for all the people that we serve, the people in our lives, and we're going to get the most out of every experience that we have. And that is available as long as we balance our, um, our position in our nervous system. So we've got kind of two halves to our nervous system. One gets us ready for action, one calms us down, and the 12 rocks are about achieving a balance in their nervous system. So today I was talking to 100 teachers about how to improve their well-being, looking at nested habits. We talked, we talked about how to get more sleep, for example. We spent 20 minutes just exploring the net, which is the set of behaviours that supports brilliant sleep. We also looked at the net, the set of behaviors that supports uh, creativity and how to improve your creativity. And that's what we do most days. Um, after this, this evening, I'll be talking to 16 year olds in one-to-ones through actually most with most of them, it's about getting their memory, um, supporting their study. But the idea is that we take the neuroscience and convert it into daily practices that people can put into their experience. Brilliant. So a couple, couple of questions before you move on. Uh, thank you for using the primary school version of that slide for us. I think that we, we need that. Um, secondly, daydreaming is good, isn't it? We were told at school daydreaming was bad, but didn't Einstein and Edison come up with all their clever things by daydreaming? And I like to go into that alpha state and have a cat nap whenever I'm at home and I can. Ten minutes. I have a coffee before I go into the cat nap, so I wake up. Is that all good for us or is that? You're absolutely, you're very wise, Derek. Absolutely right. Mind wandering, that is a problem solving network. And we need, you know, basically our brain is going to force that network on anyway in the day. Our brain needs to spend perhaps 20 or 30 percent of the day mind wandering. Um, and so the best thing to do is create space where you allow that to happen. A good walk outside with a bit of mind wandering is extremely powerful for our creativity. And if you think about some of those, you know, people that you've just described, people like Charles Darwin, for example, Picasso, they all went on massively long walks. And it was an, you know, an absolute must in relation to their skill set, because the creativity was rolling as they're walking outside, allowing that creative network, the daydreaming mind wandering network to solve some of the problems in their experience. So yeah, absolutely. So daydreaming is a good thing. Um, and you know, one of my passions as an ex-teacher is to get the education system that is all about changing brains to acknowledge the fact that we know all this stuff and we should change the way that we um, manage schools. We should change the way we manage the criminal justice system. We should change the way we think about ourselves. You know, mental illness is not a sign of weakness. Physical and mental health are the same thing. So if we're not looking after our physical health, we're going to have trouble mentally. And actually, there isn't a group of people that are super strong and they're never going to have mental illness. Actually, it's a part of being a human being. Um, and if we don't manage 
our physical and our mental well-being we're going you know if we can't make time for well-being we can make time for being ill basically yeah no that's uh, sure absolutely and um I mean, I used to daydream on the train coming out of Waterloo at about seven o'clock at night. I don't know, I was daydreaming. I was totally, uh, totally uh, knackered. But and also in my car as well, when I'm driving, when I've switched off, suddenly I get an idea. Is is that the new version of going for a ten mile walk? Or yeah so, yeah. so basically, that mind wandering network is extremely powerful. And in fact, you know, um, we kind of know that. I mean, you know, we might sort of sleep on an idea. That sort of idea. We might talk about that as an idea. That basically, we, we set our mind wandering network up with a question. We could use our mindfulness network. We could set ourselves a problem to solve, toss it into our mind wandering network. It will churn away and then it'll appear at some point. The thing about the mind wandering network, it does work at its own pace. Uh, it's a bit like a teenager, it works at its own pace, um, but eventually uh, we'll come up with some solution. In fact, that's the brain's mission ultimately. It is a massive pattern recognizing problem solving machine you give it enough exposure you give it enough information and it will crawl over that information and it will find patterns and it will seek solutions to all the complexity and if you think about what humans have achieved in the space of thirty thousand years we've gone from you know maybe three hundred thousand of us around sort of the middle east and africa to eight billion of us it's the same brain the same stone age brain that sharpened hand axes 30,000 years ago that landed the Perseverance rover on Mars a couple of weeks ago, the same brain. So in the, the brain has really hardly changed, um, but obviously our technology and our creativity is incredibly powerful because of that brain. Okay, next question from me. So um, I was told, and it works for me, um, as before you go to bed, if there's something bothering you, write, write the question down. Uh, and put it by a pad by your bed with a question mark at the end of it and uh, you'll wake up with the answer. Uh, that's question one. And the other question is, uh, I was taught how to work the, our reticular activation system, the RAS. I was never sure whether that really existed, but it seemed to be something that focused the mind. Yeah, so absolutely. So the first question, that process of writing that question down, when we sleep, particularly in dreaming sleep, there's an algorithm that runs across the brain that literally crawls across knowledge, building connections between knowledge and creating novelty. And if you've given it something to chew over, you are possibly going to come up with the answer um, in the morning. It might be the next day or the day after. It's not massively reliable in that sense, but it absolutely. So that phrase sleep on it exists in every language because we kind of instinctually know it. And the reticulating activation system Absolutely. There's an area of the brain um, sitting towards the back of the prefrontal cortex, which is the bit of the brain that manages the rest of it. You can prime that bit of the brain uh, to go in. It's like a, a sort of search term you could put in there. So, for example, you know, if you're buying a, a particular new car, um, you know, you suddenly see those cars all over the road, um, whereas before you wouldn't have noticed them because you've, you your attention system is on that on that and and that, you know what's amazing about the brain is every single person's brain is beautifully different because everyone's experiences are different and the brain wires itself up in response to experience so you know when we're having a conversation all our brains are going off in slightly different directions um, because on the basis of its own experience and the brain spends um, most of its day 
trying to work out what's going to happen next. And it uses its previous experience in order to do that. And obviously what human brains have been able to do is steal other people's experiences in books and, you know, passing down information from generation to generation, which means that we're not starting like a squirrel is from scratch. We've built everything on the basis of what other brains have done previously. So, you know, we've not only got the ability of a brain to communicate with itself through the mind, but it naturally communicates with other minds. And that's really you know, our superpower as a human species, we're kind to people that aren't members of our family. Reciprocal altruism is a very powerful evolutionary st um, strategy, which means that we've probably been the most successful organism, although um, we've only been around for 110,000 years. So if you want to talk about longevity of a species, you know, bacteria probably win that prize, um, but they haven't actually done a great deal in that time, whereas if you think what we've achieved, Okay, um, next question before we move on to your next slide. So one of the other techniques which appears to work is to put pictures of your board of directors, either live or dead, round your room and keep bringing them up and asking, well, what would Winston Churchill say about this? Or what would Richard Branson say about this? Or what would Oliver Cromwell say about this? Is that just another brain falling technique? Yeah, I suppose what that would do, I suppose, is if you've got in your head um, sort of maps of the sorts of ways those people might think, um, then I suppose as you're thinking about that person, you're perhaps exploring that problem with that perspective. So it's like different camera angles, isn't it? Going back to the beginning of our conversation with a new camera, I think you're giving yourself a different way of thinking about that problem, like de Bono's hats, like, you know, the black yeah. hats. That's, I think that's probably where that kind of idea comes from. I think it's probably quite powerful because, you know, different people's brains have different approaches. And that, that really is the success of our species, that we're all different. And that if you think about anything that we've accomplished, we do it on the basis of a team connected together in corporations, in institutions. Um, we do it working together as a team. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, I saw a few pictures in the uh, in the papers about uh, Starlings murmuring this weekend, and that's something we could talk about on another show, I'm sure. But it's absolutely <laughs> phenomenal how how that works. Andrew, have you got some um, you got some more slides for us there? I think haven't you? Yeah, so I'll talk I talked to you a bit, a bit about um, you know how to get a few rocks into your life. So um, you know, just thinking about walking outside in nature. I mentioned walking. Um, and give some examples of what it does. So walking outside in nature is proven um, to change the brain state within a few minutes, actually. So when we walk outside in nature, what we do is we engage our attention passively in nature. So that opens up all of the circuits at the front of our head. Now, at the top and the sides of our prefrontal cortex, kind of behind this bit of your forehead, those are the most um, cognitive problem-solving, solution-focused circuits in the brain. They're outward-focusing, they're strategizing circuits. So if we're kind of tight in a ball of anxiety and stress and can't come up with the solution, going for a walk outside forces the brain to open itself up, accessing the prefrontal cortex, um, the biggest cognitive heft that we've got, um, and can very quickly changes our mood and has this effect on the body as well. So within three minutes, our blood pressure decreases and mood improves with just five minutes so we might say well there's no point going for a five minute walk there absolutely is how many times do we find ourselves 
wading through a bunch of work. We're doing our emails. We've got five minutes before the next thing. And we think, I'll just sit here and catch up on the news. Now get up and walk outside. Within 10 minutes, creativity in your thinking improves. If you go for a long walk, what they found over time, there's a reduction in depressive thoughts. So let's talk about um, rumination, which is a very upsetting risk experience that sits at the back of the prefrontal cortex, about the length of a thumb in. There's an area of the brain that engages in rumination, which is highly negatively charged thinking, where we're at the center of it, and we're very upset about an experience. But not only are we upset or angry, we've decided to run a bath of that emotion and get in the bath and ladle that emotion over our heads. Um, and we've got ourselves stuck in this kind of ruminatory network. Um, and what they did was they did a really interesting study. They just got people to go on a walk for 90 minutes a day. They sent some people down a side of a highway and they weren't seeing much nature. And they sent some people through a wood and they scanned their brains. And there's an, this area at the back of the prefrontal cortex is heavily associated with rumination. And what they found was just after a couple of weeks of doing that every day, there was a reduction in activity in that area of the prefrontal cortex and a reduction in ruminatory thoughts and depressive thoughts. So, you know, um, the, the health services globally are cottoning onto this idea. You've probably, you may have heard of it, social prescribing. There's a bunch of stuff that we can do for ourselves every day around well-being. That doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, there are people that have got mental illnesses because of the way the brain connects up because of certain imbalances in certain chemicals because of trauma that they've experienced but because we're living in a neurally plastic brain wherever we start we can slowly but surely begin to change the structure of our brain our brain is constantly changing on the basis of what we use it for so you know walking outside has lots of health benefits but is extremely powerful benefit in terms of the ability of our brain to um, open up its thinking and become a bit more balanced in its response. Um, so I mentioned memory, Derek, briefly. You mentioned it, I'd like you to talk about it because I remember always going around saying I had a bad memory and then someone said, what would happen if you, had, if you said you had a good memory? And my memory improved straight away. <laughs> What's that all about? No, that's a good, it's a good anecdote. So I think most people would say about 80% of people would say they've got a bad memory, but they're misunderstanding, I think, what their memory is. So they've got um, a short term memory, which is brilliant in short term uh, experiences. So short term memory is literally firing neurons in the prefrontal cortex. And all the time they're firing, we can remember stuff, not massive amounts of stuff, maybe four to seven items. But we've got an infinitely capable long-term memory. There are more connections possible in our brain than there are stars in the sky, grains of sand on the beach, whatever example you choose. There's so much combinatorial power in all the connections across the brain. So we've got to get information from the world into our brain. The brain is differentially designed to remember three sorts of information over other sorts of information. The brain remembers dangerous information virtually instantly. So if we're caught in a very difficult situation, our brain will remember that situation almost instantly to avoid it in future. So people in a house fire will still find themselves triggered by the smell of smoke years afterwards. And they'll remember, you know, those traumatic memories that people have, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's all about 
the amygdala deep in the brain, the threat assessment area has got its own memory. So brain to remember dangerous information so we can avoid it. Brain to remember salient information, stuff we're interested in. We're much more likely to remember for a couple of reasons. A, we've already got pre-existing structures in our head, memory structures for that information. So we're much more likely to catch hold of that information. So there was a beautiful example earlier on, wasn't there, where um, one of our um, guests was talking about uh, Manchester Football Club, I think, and going back into the past, talking about all those different football players. That is a beautiful schema for Manchester United. There's lots of information in there about Manchester United. So when we've got stuff that we're interested in, we're much more likely to remember it because we've already got hooks for new information to hang on. But also when we're interested, our brain produces a chemical called acetylcholine, which makes that memory more sticky anyway. So we're more likely to remember it. And then finally, the only other way to get information into our brain is to repeat it. So we're listening to it and we're thinking, yeah, so we're in a, in a learning experience. We're thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm getting this. I'm understanding this. That's fantastic. Brilliant. If we leave it three days and don't look at it again, our brain will have forgotten it. Our brain is designed to forget 70% of its experience. Every day it dumps 70% of its experience. Why does it do that? Because a brain that remembered everything would be pretty useless because it wouldn't be able to differentiate between what was important and what wasn't important. How does our brain know what's important? Basically, it works on the basis of whatever you're using your brain for, it will encode that in memory. So I say to kids all the time, if you're spending your time worrying about what your mate's doing, why hasn't he liked your stuff on Instagram and what you're having for dinner tonight in the middle of my science lesson, then that's what you're going to remember. You won't remember my science lesson. The more you go over something, the more that gets encoded. So I say to kids all the time, if you don't repeat the information, you're just, your brain is going to delete it and forgetting is an active process. Memory construction is active, but forgetting is also active. There's a chemical in the synapses, the gaps between the neurons that rubs out connections that haven't been used for a while and that information fades. Wow. I was going to ask you about Alzheimer's and what that happens, but that's just a, that's a medical issue, isn't it? I guess, but they do say the more you use your brain, and also, I was thinking, as um, as I'm getting a bit older, I heard that uh, we we lose um, we lose uh, neurons or whatever it's called in our brain. But I also heard that you can create new ones. Yeah. So basically, we didn't know until fairly recently that you that we, our brains carry out neurogenesis, which is making new brain cells. Exercise generates new connections. So particularly at the front, the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. So the more you use your brain. You know, even if you're doing Sudoku, crosswords, any active use of brain cells creates connections, cognitive reserve. So what happens as we get older is a protein called amyloid protein builds up in the brain. Um, it's cleaned out at night, but it still begins to build up. And what it does slowly but surely is it makes neurons defunct. They kind of eventually wither and die. You've got billions of them. If you've created lots of connections, what they found in a fascinating study, you may have heard of it, it was really famous. They did a nun study. There's a group of nuns that were really um, very old, living in a monastery together. They were very sort of sprightly and very kind of cognitively able. And when they died, they left their brains to medical science and they began to look at their brains. And what they found, you know, while Alzheimer's and, and is a specific disease which, which involves the creation of more of this amyloid protein, what they found was these 
um, elderly nuns had lots of amyloid protein in their heads. Um, they had lots of kind of gaps where information couldn't move around, but because they got lots of cognitive connections, there was lots of roots around those gaps. So it is absolutely possible to keep yourself kind of um, more active mentally. That obviously Alzheimer's is a disease. So that means that that process of um, attrition is accelerated. And we don't know the solution to that yet, but it doesn't mean we won't be able to support people a bit more effectively mm. with Alzheimer's. I know they're looking at drugs that might do that as well. Okay, brilliant. Now, have you got, we're, um, we're get, getting towards the end of our time. Have you got some more slides for us or shall I go to the chat box? Um, let's kind of just talk, let's just talk briefly about moaning, shall we? Yeah, because please. I'm a little bit sick of moaning. Humans moan an awful lot. Um, the, one of the, you know, the most important bit to understand about moaning is that that's how, that's the way the brain spots problems. The brain spots problems by moaning about problems to itself. So it spots a problem. And the moment it spots a problem, we have generally a negative emotional reaction to that problem. I've got to solve that problem. I've got to solve that problem. And that is how the brain spots problems. And moaning is effectively the brain talking to itself about the problem it's got to solve. Unfortunately, not every circuit in the brain is going to be able to solve every problem. Each problem's got its own circuitry associated with it. Um, and therefore, a lot of moaning, maybe 90% of moaning, is simply circuits in the brain that don't have a solution, just registering the fact that there's a problem to be solved. Then moaning turns into groaning. So what groaning is, is the brain going, well, basically, I've now got to solve that. Isn't that that's amazing? Your brain, brains very much love to save energy. So they're quite moany about the fact and groany about the fact they've got, I've got to do this now, really? It's like that bit in The Incredibles when Mr. Incredible says, I feel like the maid. I've got to come and clean up again because everyone's made a mess. Um, and so groaning and moaning turns into a negative conversation with ourselves. We get a drony brain. So we get moaning, groaning, and we can spend our lives in this negative version of reality where we're constantly moaning about the fact that we've got a problem to solve and it's real loads of effort and that we end up in a negative kind of spiral of conversation with ourselves. And the most upsetting a bit about that is that it just means that people are suffering enormously from a basic process the brain is carrying out. It's spotting a problem. That's what it's doing. And the best way to deal with a moan is to get to the nub of what the issue is as quickly as possible, because the moan is describing, disguising possibly the actual problem at the heart of it. So, yeah, maybe we go to the chat box now rather than me. Why is, um, why is moaning catching and why is positivity catching? Because, you know, if you're not careful, if you if you stick around with some moaners, you end up moaning yourself and catching this uh, negativity. Yeah, so basically that's because we're very social creatures and we've got, there's a bit of our prefrontal cortex that's basically out in the world, taking the temperature of the people we're with and we all want to fit in. You know, people say, I don't like conflict. Humans don't like conflict. If you fall out with people, you might get thrown out of the tribe and therefore you're out on the African savannah trying to survive on your own. Nobody likes conflict, so unless you're a psychopath, um, then maybe you do like conflict or you've had massively troubled relationships in the past. But generally, people don't like conflict. They don't like to make um, the difficulties with other people. So what we do, we constantly sit the social milieu around us and we try and bring our behavior in line with those people around us so we can fit in. And you see that most profoundly in adolescent brains when they're mixing with their mates 
16, 18 year olds. And then they've got the culture at home that's different. And there's that massive clash where they're sort of finding it very difficult to sort of square the circle. They're trying to be one thing at home and a completely different thing with their mates. And that becomes quite difficult to manage. Okay, Andrew, that's absolutely brilliant. I'm going to go to the chat box now and uh, just take a look at it. First question is, does scanning an exam paper at the start of an exam aid the answer popping up later in the time? Um, uh, that is, that, that, that's that is, what we were talking about uh, earlier, wasn't it? That's such a brilliant question. So perceptive and absolutely. So basically, the earlier you can give your brain exposure, basically, that's what I always say to children. Read the whole exam paper. I know it feels like you haven't started yet, but read the whole exam paper because and then say to yourself, Well, yeah, okay, that question, that question, because actually your brain will immediately start processing that information and start crawling over it and seeing what it knows. So by the time you get to the really tricky question that you thought you didn't know anything about, whatever your brain has got, it will have sticked up for you at that point. So, yes, absolutely, that sort of priming process is really important so if you can do that and you know there's really powerful evidence for that kind of exam technique and what i say to kids is not only read the paper but then grade the questions on the basis of what you think is going to be the easiest one and what's going to be the hardest one do an easy one then do a hard one do another easy one do a hard one and don't necessarily do the paper in numerical order do it in the order that you feel um, where you're managing your kind of emotional experience of the exam as well Oh, wow. I thought it'd been better to do all the easy ones first to get the momentum. But that's not so. I, I think it's better to kind of balance it because you've got easy ones to run to. Um, and obviously with the harder ones, what, I'm, what I say to kids is you probably want to go back to them again and again to kind of squeeze out as many answers as possible. And at no point should you give up. You know, putting something on a bit of paper is better than putting nothing. I used to be an examiner and you get on the back of a question paper. Sometimes you get plaintive pleas from the kids, you know, dear examiner, please, please. I need a grade C because I don't want because I want to do this particular course. And I haven't really revised, but please, please, please. Um, you know, and that's just an awful thing to read, actually, because you just have to follow the exam code. You can't respond to those sorts of. I expect there were some 20 pound notes in those papers as well, was there? Well, if only, if only, probably, probably not. Maybe a, maybe a, a, a Rizzler and a bit of tobacco, maybe that's a bit that could bribe us. OK, next question. Um, does walking in nature versus walking in the streets make any, diff any difference? Yeah, good question. There's quite a few studies on that. Walking outside is good, but walking in nature is better. Walking in nature particularly requires a passive attention, which engages circuits at the front of our prefrontal cortex. So walking beside the sea, walking amongst trees, greenery has a very powerful effect on our brain as well. Um, you know, they did studies where they looked at people recovering from operations in hospital. So people looking out at green scenery recovered more quickly and suffered less relapses than people that were staring at a brick wall or a courtyard. So, you know, we're kind of of nature. And once we're amongst it, we feel better. Uh, and there's like evidence in the brain of which bits are firing as to why that would be the case. We've had one or two people on talking about forest bathing. I thought they'd lost the plot at the first, but they sent me some links and I read it and I went off into the forest uh, on, uh, on the Surrey Hills and uh, it sort of worked. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you, you know, if you look actually about the countryside is such an important part of our lives. 
and you know I think it make it makes such a difference um, in terms of well-being uh, and you know and, and there's often you know one of the other rocks is connection with friends and family so you know connecting with friends and family out in nature is a powerful double whammy for the brain wow yeah and i must admit i went down to the uh, beach and took my shoes and socks off and walked in the sea on the sand as well after that and i thought wow i've done i haven't done this for years it's absolutely uh, fantastic next question what's the source of the evidence for the walking slide this is the left brain man ex-managing director asking the question he wants yeah. the evidence yeah you you'll be upset um with the amount of evidence i could share with you there's lots of evidence about the impact that the walking has on physiology and psychology. Lots of different papers. So obviously I've spent 28 years pouring all over all of that evidence and it's constantly being updated. So there's lots of information from different sources. And I suppose what we do, what I do as a complete nerd is just look across all those different disciplines. So, you know, the thing about being a specialist is, you know, one of my professors at university was the world expert on sphagnum moss I'd never even heard of sphagnum moss, but he was the person that was shipped out around the globe to talk about this particular kind of moss. But the trouble with the specialisms is that it means that you don't necessarily make connections across. So it's about being crossing the interdisciplinary chasm, which is what we do. So there's lots and lots of evidence around physiology um, and physiology journals about the impact of walking. There's lots of evidence from sports science as well. There's lots of evidence from kind of archeology span and paleontology. Humans walk, used to walk at least 20, 25,000 steps a day just to hunt and gather. And so, you know, our bodies are desperate, literally they're designed to move. And we spend so much time sitting down. Um, they're literally crying out for movement. They really want us to move every 30 minutes if possible. Even the joints, even the way that the nerves work, even the way the blood moves, it requires and expects movement. And a lot of the issues that we face, both in mental illness and physical uh, issues are about the, our lack of movement. We don't move anywhere near as much as we should. Oh, it's zoom doom while we're sitting here doing this and not moving rather than zoom boom. Anyway, we're going to have some zoom boom. I've got uh, one or two other questions before we wrap up, Andrew. Uh, could a commando mindset be repurposed into education? That comes from an academic. I'm not sure I understand the question from Nigel, but you can probably translate that. No, a commando mindset, as in, I'd imagine you're not about going commando, you're more talking about the kind of um, soldierly mindset, I suppose. Is yeah. that the question? Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It's more to do with the motivation, the sort of realising the goals, achieving your goals. So effectively taking that kind of military discipline and refocusing that when applying to an academic study. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the army and what they managed to achieve, that is a perfect example of what human beings can do in a team um, with belief, but obviously with being highly skilled as well. Um, and a lot of army training, almost accidentally, I think, although increasingly now psychologists are involved in it as well, explores that kind of process of making sure that humans reach this this place of optimal functioning. You've probably heard of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi as a psychologist who's come up with this idea of flow, which is that moment when you're 
totally absorbed in what you're doing. You're dealing with something that's very challenging, but you've got the skill to meet that challenge. Your kind of ego falls away and you're totally focused on what you're doing. So people often find it in sport. They might find it in Sudoku. They certainly find it as commandos. Um, it's that moment of flow. And Csikszentmihalyi describes it as optimal human functioning. Um, and it is about that kind of disciplined mindset. Absolutely. But it's also about uh, making sure that your skills meet the challenge. And, you know, discipline is also about a set of habits as well. If you look at the military, literally that kind of phrase military, it is about a set of responses. If you think about drill, it's all about burning in the circuitry, burning that down so it becomes an instant response. So, you know, once you've got an order from your commanding officer, if he's telling you to duck, you're not questioning that, you are ducking. Because if you're questioning it, you're probably gonna get a bullet between your forehead. So it's literally about burning down into the circuitry, those um, behaviors so they become habitual. Um, so yeah, I'm sure. I know you've got some mentoring to do and uh, we're very grateful for your uh, valuable time, especially if you've been talking to hundreds of uh, school kids just now. Uh, let, let's, uh, these are probably yes or no. What about long walks with your, Earpods in listening to audiobooks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's great, isn't it? I suppose what I'd say about that, that's fantastic. Um, and it's really because one of the rocks is um learning and growing, and our brains love to do that. I mean, if you were being nerdy about it, you'd kind of parcel your walk up. So you'd have a bit of time when you're just in nature listening to the birds, um, you know, maybe 10 minutes or so you then give yourself 10 minutes of mind wandering, maybe listening to some music, and then you'd sort of mix it up. That's what that's probably the best way of accessing all the rocks. Um, but yes, absolutely. Podcast as well. Uh, learning new things is something the brain loves to do. So, okay. yeah. Great. Next, next question. Is a certain sort of brain, is, it, is someone taking an instant dislike to someone? Is that saving the brain energy and time? Uh, possibly, but also, you know, we've got very good social assessment software in our brain and you know often our first impression not always but often our first impression is right and that process of assessment is happening you know much more rapidly than conscious thought is happening and we often you know people in interview situations often make judgments about a person within the first few seconds of meeting them and spend the rest of the day justifying those instincts with kind of rationality so, you know, I think that the brain is, we're very good at assessing people because actually that was a life and death situation. If you couldn't uh, trust the neighbor in your tribe because he was a right so-and-so and lied all the time and nicked your stuff, you knowing that was really important. So we're very good at assessing people. So if we don't like someone, you know, you know, it's sometimes good to give people a second chance, but maybe, you know, our instincts are right. Our instincts have been honed by thousands and thousands of interactions and we, are people that have descended from people that survived by understanding the social world. So, yeah, probably. I can believe some of those all-day assessment centres just to pick one person for a job that I got involved in uh, once or twice, because uh, it was usually the person I sussed out in the first uh, few seconds or few minutes that uh, got the job from uh, what they wrote and the truth they were they were telling. But um, um, yeah. What about mind mapping? I'm a I'm a serial mind mapper. Um, I've got an all day talk tomorrow and I'm serially mind map, map, mapping it. It works for me. Yeah, no, mind mapping is really powerful. So, you know, the brain's very good at association. Um, it spends a lot of its time 
So it's got top-down processing. Once it's got information in, it then crawls over it and looks for connections and mind maps bring that stuff to the fore and make it really explicit. So it's a very powerful way, not only of preparing and developing ideas, but also of remembering and connecting ideas as well. And, you know, my mind maps are fantastic because they're as individual as fingerprints. The way that our brain connects ideas is completely different to the way somebody else's brain connects ideas because we've all had different experiences. Right. Um, uh, okay, Andrew, uh, I think uh, well, there's a few more questions in there, but I'm going to save the chat box and I'm going to ask you now if you'll come back and uh, do in a more advanced session for us or a different session and uh, in a few months time. Uh, it's been absolutely brilliant and uh, I wanted to thank you for doing that. And uh, can I get a yes for you from on that? I would love to do that. It was lovely. It's lovely talking about the brain. I love it. And I'm um, just seeing in the chat mention of Blink by Michael Malcolm Gladwell. Fantastic book. I can recommend some great books, um, which I'll maybe send you a list, Eric, you could send on. Yes, so. please. I mean, I read Blink and I was gobsmacked on some of those mistakes police officers made, uh, you know, in a split second because they thought they were they were in danger. That uh, Malcolm Gladwell was very good. So can I ask everyone to uh, raise their hands and give a big wave to uh, Andrew as, uh, as a thank you for that. And um, I'll ask you to stay on for a little while if you can. And just to say, if you're watching this on YouTube or the Negotiators Podcaster, I'm thanking Andrew Wright, where you can find him on LinkedIn and you can find his business from the link. What is your, what's your website, Andrew? We're called Action Your Potential. So actionyourpotential.org. Actionyourpotential.org. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And uh, see you next week.